As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey. This is the Weekend Review. Joining me to glide through the weekend events like a Super Bowl streaker evading security with his pants down, it's Taylor Rockwell. Taylor, hello. <laughs> hello. Wow, that's uh, that's an introduction and I will take it. Yeah, gotta love that security. Everybody's vaccinated, everything's secure, but we are going to let a bethonged man go running through the field. Indeed. And joining us also is a man who packs in the facts like Tampa Bay NFL stadiums, pack in fans. <laughs> during a pandemic, uh, it's Graham Rutherford. Graham, hello. Hello, Ryan. And my facts uh, don't have card- cardboard cutouts between them either. It's just pure facts. <laughs> 70,000 fans worth of facts. How are you? <laughs> very good. Thank you. Very good. Uh, so we should probably talk about the Superb Owl, which took place uh, on Sunday night. The highlight, of course, was the Glazer speech at the end. I was surprised they didn't mention the 3-3 draw, which we will mention later in this show. But um, we, we all enjoyed the proceedings, did we, gents? Graham, did you, did you, did you stay up until the wee early hours? Um, I stayed up until it became clear that Tom Brady was going to Tom Brady the whole thing up Um, and I didn't actually catch the Glazer speech. I was in my bed at that point because in the UK that was about 4am. But yes, I I enjoyed it to a certain extent. Seemed like there was a lot of people in that stadium, but um, yeah, Florida, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Florida, I guess. Hello to our listeners in Florida, by the way. Yeah, sorry sorry to any listeners in Florida. (laughs) I mean, I think I think they are like even with the the explanation of the seventy five hundred, the optics still weren't great, and that needed to be a thing that I feel like they were saying from the very beginning and constantly had the graphics up. They were too busy talking about how hard the year has been to focus on why there are so many people in the stands. I think they eventually did a better job, but by showing the cardboard cutouts and showing how like it wasn't just twenty five thousand people packed in and breathing on each other, but still an, a weird thing. I was surprised by how many people were surprised by it, if that makes sense. Like checking in Twitter and seeing how many people were just like, what is happening? I thought we were in a pandemic. It was, it was a strange way to start the game for sure. It was strange indeed. And how about the middle of the game, that halftime show? Um, I, uh, Taylor, are you with us? Uh, I think I was talking to Graham about this last night. We're, we're a bit old and didn't really understand what was happening at halftime. Well, you're quite <laughs> hipster though, aren't you? 
Am I? I guess I am. I don't know. Yeah, you are. I, in in the same way that when I was making fun of Alexis's uh, Alexis Gross's breakfast habits, I was mocked for uh, what like why don't you go eat avocado toast? Which I don't eat, but that is a hipster thing, and I see where that's coming from. Uh, mm-hmm. I I like uh, the weekend. Uh, is it just weekend? The weekend? See, that's how old and unhip I am. Uh, we couldn't. I think it is always the issue. It is weekend. Uh, it is always the problem of live performances when you actually perform live are never going to sound as good as when they are dubbed or lip syncing. I think last year was a lot of lip syncing. I think this year was not, and that always makes it kind of hard with the sound mixing and whatnot. Because I like the weekend. That was not my favorite halftime performance. I feel like the Champions League final is heading closer and closer towards having Super Bowl style halftime shows. Do you see that being a thing, Graham, at some point soon? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember Hardfy uh, performing before an FA Cup final a few years oh, yeah. ago, um, which uh, set the bar, the bar uh, very low, uh, ironically, <laughs> for, uh, for, for, for the FA Cup final. But yeah, I mean, if, if there isn't a sea shanty halftime show at the Champions League final, uh, this year, then I'll, I'll I'll be very disappointed because that feels uh, very much like uh, what what the fans want. Yeah, this I, year. I think I think Graham is right. We need more sea shanties. We did occasionally get them during the game last night, but I had to remember that it's because it's the Buccaneers and not right. just because they were embracing the sea shanty thing. What Yar. I would really like to see happen, both with the Super Bowl going forward, but also the Champions League. Uh, Alexis, the aforementioned Alexis, but a few other people were retweeting the Copa Sudamerica 2019 halftime show where Las Palmeras performed. I guess each uh, team gets to like invite one musician or one musical act to play at halftime. So you get sort of both teams where they're coming from, their musical history. And uh, yeah, they rock that stadium. So I want Los, uh, Los Palmeras uh, playing all the time at every single event or teams to just bring uh, a, like a musical act that represents where they're from. And we have a little bit of a Eurovision situation. Oh, I love it. That's a really good idea. I'm up for that. That, that um, FA Cup final you mentioned, Graham, with Hardfire, I, was that the same FA Cup final where um, Alan Pardew did the uh, mid-game performance as well from the <laughs> sidelines? <laughs> Maybe. It might have been, yeah. He, he might have had a delayed reaction to that performance with that dance. Oh, good times. Anyway, why don't we focus uh, a bit uh, um, on, on this weekend? Uh, not just a bit, maybe we'll do an hour or so on this weekend. We had an eventful <laughs> game, uh, Liverpool against Manchester City, of course, and even more eventful one at Old Trafford uh, with Man United taking on Everton. We're going to go continental, talking about Juventus against Roma, and we're going to check in on Poch in uh, Paris, uh, but in this case in Marseille, La Classique. Uh, we're going to check on, on that one later. Sadly, uh, listener, no update from our Dutch favourite second division side, Den Bosch. They lost 3-2 to, to Graf Schaap uh, on Saturday. No Jis Hornkamp in the squad for that one. So Den Bosch unable to provide that Jis money shot that we got that set the internet <laughs> alight last week, unfortunately. Also, no mention of uh, Wimbledon. My team winning 3-2, another 3-2. We won at Wigan. <laughs> I've forgotten what winning feels like. Is this what it feels like when doves cry, gentlemen? Because oh, we got three points this weekend. I can't quite believe it. I'm I'm a huge fan of Ryan not mentioning things that he then proceeds to mention. I, I'm not sure Ryan understands what not mentioning means, but I like it. I'm a big fan. <laughs> well, I'm not going to not mention <laughs> Liverpool against Manchester City. Why don't we get into that? Here we go. Um... <laughs> I like you. That's the approach I have with Man United, where I'm like, I'm just going to talk about him really quickly, and 45 minutes later, I can literally hear you both like drumming your fingers on the tables, waiting for me to stop talking. <laughs> Here we are again. Yes, right. Back to you. 
<laughs> Liverpool, uh, they took on Manchester City. They lost 4-1, don't you know? Liverpool, who hadn't scored at home for almost six hours before this game. Uh, this is uh, Man City's first win at Anfield since 2003 in the league. Phil Foden was two years old when that win took place, apparently, that last win at Anfield. Uh, Liverpool's fourth loss in six, this was. Um, Liverpool have lost three consecutive games at Anfield for the first time since 1963. Um, lots of talking points to get into here, gentlemen, but the first one, the most important one, Graham, I'm going to turn to you for this one. Phil Foden taking a lot of headlines in this game. His haircut. <laughs> is that a thing that is in the UK? I, I haven't lived in the UK for 10 years. That haircut, is that a desirable thing when a young gentleman goes into the barbershop and says, I'll have the Phil Foden? Um, not that I'm aware of, but also I, I didn't think the weekend was was a was very <laughs> a very big Super Bowl <laughs> halftime act uh, performance and and a performer and and yet people were telling me he's he's literally the most streamed artist on Spotify at the moment. So I'm not I'm maybe not the best person to to ask what the trends of the kids are right now. It's it's his eyebrow for me that you know he's a, he's mm. a twenty he's a twenty year old man and he and he still gets the the little cut in his eyebrow which I I did have at a point in in my life, but when I was about fourteen or fifteen years old, so. Um, yes, he's he's matured on the football pitch, but maybe not so much in what he asked for at the Barbers. Well, hang on. We're not glossing over this. You did the yeah, eyebrow thing? Yeah, let's talk about this. <laughs> the the eyebrow thing, yeah. Everyone did that. When, when... Did they? Well, I did. <laughs> and 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 stripes and stripes of blonde stripes in your hair and... and... Uh, yeah, I was rather uncouth as a teenager. You need <laughs> so this is this this is part of the the uniform. What 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 is the, the the notched eyebrow look? Is that like like when you get it done? Is it just like because everybody else is getting it done? You're like, oh yeah, I like that look. Or is there something specifically about it that you were into? Uh, no, it's just because everyone else had it. I, right. I, yeah, I, I don't know what it signifies. It do, it doesn't signify anything. I wouldn't say it lent itself to a certain style or anything. It just, uh, yeah. Everyone else had it, so I got it. So we'll see if All Phil right. Foden starts a, a new trend here. Let's <laughs> hope so. Maybe he, maybe you started the trend and Phil Foden's just jumping on the back of it. There's that to think about as well. Um, <laughs> Liverpool in this game, uh, obviously a little bit disappointing for them. 44% possession at home here. Two attempts on target for Liverpool. I saw someone mention on, online, um, Anfield was never about the place. It was about the people. And this got me thinking, gents, because Liverpool did win a title in an empty stadium. They've been doing okay up until relatively recently. Is that just a bit of an excuse to say that Liverpool are suffering without having fans or that Anfield, their infallible record at Anfield is falling apart specifically because of lack of fans? It seems like there's something else at play here, Taylor. Um, I think there, there's probably, yeah, something else at play, but I do think that that is a, a fundamentally important aspect of things because you go back to the restart. I don't, I think I'm correct in saying Liverpool were not as consistent after the restart to last season, but at the same mm -hmm. time, that's still Liverpool with Virgil van Dijk, and they sort of have that reputation coming in of it's going to be really difficult to play against this team. You're not going to be able to keep them uh, from scoring, and I think anytime you're approaching a game with that mentality, you're sort of already on the back foot. And so I think this season, when you have a not packed uh, Anfield, no one in Anfield, and you have no Virgil van Dijk, I think there's just more vulnerability for and opponents coming in. I think you don't have that atmosphere, you don't have that intensity, and you know there's no Virgil van Dijk. So you look back there and you see Jordan Henderson and Fabinho, and I think there is less of a mental edge for Liverpool this season just because of those types of factors. The crowd, definitely part of it. Virgil van Dijk, a huge part of it as well. 
Yeah, well, let's talk about those centre-backs in that situation. Maybe the defence in general. Alisson didn't cover himself in glory here. Not quite sure what was going through his head there with those two clearances, or three clearances it was, that led to two goals, basically. Um, and also Trent Alexander, uh, uh, TAA, I keep getting his name wrong. <laughs> I'm just going to say Trent. He keeps uh, he had a, a dodgy clearance for the first goal as well. But specifically with Alisson, um, Graham, what was, what was your thoughts on what was going on there? Because this dogged insistence in playing the ball short from the goalkeeper, never hoofing it. I think even Jurgen Klopp said something like, well, you can always put it in the stands. And he never did that. And what do you think is going on? There was, I've seen some suggestions that because he doesn't have like regular centre-backs in front of him, it's his confidence that's affected. But And even I think Jurgen Klopp even hinted that maybe his feet were cold. It was a cold <laughs> day, which is, which is a new one. I was expecting some Jurgen Klopp ex- excuses like, I don't know, Mercury's in retrograde or tectonic plates have shifted or something but uh, <laughs> the goalkeeper having cold feet that was that was a, that was an interesting one for me what do you, what do you think's happening with him yeah I, I thought Klopp might blame the fireworks that were that went off during the match yeah uh, yeah he's come up with some excuse Klopp, ex, excuses uh, Klopp this season but the cold feet thing was well, as you say was a new one on me I I, I don't I, I'm sorry I'm, I'm not sure if I can offer much of an explanation for what happened with 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 Alison Becker you know he gets away with the first one um for the for the for the, the first goal that he's he's at fault for and and then he plays another pass direct you know a few seconds later and then he does it again for for this an, another goal so um yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I, I think it, it must be frustrating as a manager. There are times when you just need to to clear it into the the stand, but there there is a yeah. little bit of a trend going on here with with Premier League goalkeepers. I mean, the, the Premier League uh, not so long ago had some of the best goalkeepers in the world, but how many of them are in form at the moment? So Alison Becker, obviously, with those two mistakes at the weekend there. Um, Ederson is not quite as solid as, as he once was. David De Gea mm. was, I think we're going to maybe speak about him later, a little bit weak in, in that Everton game and has been weak at points this season. Even people like Hugo Lloris at, at Spurs has been culpable for a, a couple goals this season. So uh, there's, I don't know whether it's just the, the way things are falling, if there's not much more to it than, than, than just bad fortune. But yeah, the Premier League goalkeeping ranks are a little bit weaker than they have been in, in recent seasons this, this year. What I'm hearing from Graham is that he would like Zach Steffen to start every game for every team, and I agree with him. Uh, go America. Uh, I, I watching this like game. I watched this game again, and I think because I watched so much soccer and then like tried to actively forget the Super Bowl because Tom Brady won, uh, I kind of forgot the way this game went down. And so watching those first two mistakes from Allison, being like, like, okay, I knew this was bad. Like that's pretty pretty bad, and completely forgot that he did it again. And mm. so. Then I, I spent an enormous amount of time watching that. And I think it just comes down to the, the age old thing of once you make a mistake, you're so focused on not making that same mistake that you stop playing automatically and just sort of like, oh, there's that through pass. I'll play that through pass. You think, I hope I can play that. Is this the right pass? And there's that little hesitation. You don't back yourself as much. And I think that's what happens for the second miss pass. So that for the, the third goal, which is also a mistake, is him trying not to make any mistakes, trying not to overthink it, and instead underthinks it and just swings at it. The other thing that I think is really important with this one, in that second goal where Allison gives it away twice, he makes a third mistake as well, which is to come sort of barging off of his line to mm. try to make a play. And that's like Phil Foden has two defenders around him. Yes, he's gotten past them, but they're at zero angle. Why he comes flying off to try to make a play, I have to assume is just nerves, and he sort of lost that mental sharpness in the moment. That's probably a product of the way Liverpool have been playing, but it's also just an individual mistake compounding and compounding, and now here we are. Here we are indeed. But for, for Liverpool, I actually think, Taylor, I didn't think they played that as badly 
in this game. They, you know, looked quite good for large swathes of it, but it was just City sort of yeah. ramping it up, particularly in the second half when they kind of switched to that. It was almost like a 4-4-2, wasn't it? And Phil Foden having that free roll, he was all over the place, which I think really maybe didn't help to Liverpool's defensive uh, issues that they had here. It was, it was City being so intense, pressing so much, being very well disciplined, and yet also having that freedom up top. And, you know, when I, when I looked at this lineup. And you, we know that Pep Guardiola can sort of think too much about these and over, overthink and overthink mm -hmm. these kind of games. And when he didn't start Gabriel Jesus and he's got all these midfielders, I was like, oh, what's he doing here? And we've got the, the fullbacks. I mean, you couldn't help the fullback situation particularly, but not, not, a, not a standard City formation, you would argue. But it worked out pretty well in the end. It seemed like, uh, it seemed like Pep got, got his ideas right and, mm. and, and maybe Jurgen Klopp didn't in this instance. And what, one thing I'd like to pick up on is this, 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 the discussion around Thiago. Uh, it suddenly, you know, he's, he's, he's God's gift and he sounds wonderful like silk-gloved hands when he, uh, when he touches the ball. But when, when there's a performance like this, it's all about how he doesn't fit the system. How, and I quote from Reddit, he's like a violinist in your heavy metal band. <laughs> Quite curious. Uh, I mean, I, I, I liked, I think it was either Michael, Michael Cox or Jonathan Wilson, one of the floating brains, who made the argument that like you bring him in to slow things down because you can't be heavy metal football all the time. And that was part of why they wanted him in the first place is to yeah. kill off games to like retain possession. But now you have the two people he's supposed to be playing with in midfield playing center back, and it kind of changes the dynamic a little bit. So you don't get him in the kind of ideal position with the ideal people around him. Not to let him off the hook, but I, I do think it's really easy at times, not saying you're doing this, Ryan, but just generally speaking, it's easy to focus in on the one player who's underperforming or the one player who could be doing better and not looking at all the symptoms around them that maybe aren't helping. I think Thiago could be playing better, but I think he's also trying. It's the similar to Allison thing, to be honest. It's trying to solve a lot of problems while also trying to play the way you naturally play. If you're trying to do th two things at once, it's harder. You, it's better, as Ron Swanson would say, to do one thing and whole asset instead of half assing a couple things. <laughs> well, to be fair, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily agreeing with the Thiago thing. I thought him and Curtis mm. Jones looked pretty good when yeah. sort of Liverpool were commanding the mm -hmm. ball early on. I didn't really necessarily agree with it. And there was this argument to bring Shakiri on, maybe get a bit more creativity, which is what, what, what they tried to do. But I, I don't know, Graham, have you got any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I, I'm uh, glad you mentioned Curtis Jones because I actually thought he, he played pretty well. And I don't think it's a coincidence that after he came on, off after the the Salah equaliser that that things kind of collapsed for Liverpool. I thought I actually thought even though the the second half was obviously where City scored the goals, those goals primarily came from Liverpool mistakes. And I thought the first half was actually a better illustration of the issues that Liverpool were facing against this City team. So Guardiola I thought had learned from past trips to Anfield where. Liverpool have uh, burst into a lot of space and there was a Champions League game, I think it was 2018-19 perhaps, um, the one where, uh, where Oxlade-Chamberlain scored that, that brilliant goal and, and, and he played probably his best game in, in a Liverpool shirt and the reason for that was there was so much space for Liverpool to drive into and so City set a defensive structure for Liverpool now to limit that space um, and Curtis Jones seemed to be the only player, for me anyway, who was willing and able to break that structure so that even in a defensive sense, he was doing that. So there was an instance where Phil Foden looks like he's going to race through. He's got, you know, 40 yards to run into and Curtis Jones is the only one chasing back after him and, mm. and makes the, makes the, the challenge. And, and, and so it was peculiar to me that he was the one that was, that was taken off. Um, Tiago, I need to see more. I think, I think it's, I think it's, quite early to, to judge him. I, I think he's had a pretty poor start to his Liverpool career, to be honest. 
to be honest, just because he does seem like a bit of a misfit. I can't remember yeah. if it was on this podcast or or or, or somewhere else. So apologies if I'm repeating myself. But it reminds you me of um, another podcast, Graham. <laughs> no, it was. Hussy. I think it was. I think Breaking it was more. News. <laughs> I think it was maybe maybe an article I'd written. But anyway, it mm-hmm. it, it, it was. Um, <laughs> I compared him to Juan Sebastian Veron when he signed for Manchester United. Veron, one of the best midfielders yeah. in, uh, it might actually have been in our group chat. So, ha, not cheating chat. on it you was. at all. It was our group chat, confirmed. <laughs> so, there you go. You don't need to check, check, check my tech messages or my, my recent calls or anything. They've just all been to you guys. Anyway, well, yeah, uh, we got. Thank you for the original broadcast material about one Sebastian Veron there, though, Graham. Much yeah. appreciated. So, Veron, brilliant player, joined a brilliant team in Sarts Ferguson's Manchester United, but it was only really in Europe where maybe the pace is a little bit slower and he could contr- control games a little bit more that he really shone for Manchester United. And it feels a little bit like Thiago is, is, is that sort of player. Uh, Taylor is absolutely right. It won't be until Henderson and, and Fabinho are back in that midfield that we can that we can truly judge him. But um, yeah, yeah, he needs to do more, I think. Well, let's talk about Man City in a second. But before we do, I thought it was quite telling of Jurgen Klopp after the game. You said, and I quote, "We will try everything to finish in the top four, um, and Liverpool in fourth at the moment." It seems like the, uh, the the sights have been slightly realigned, Taylor. Have they not? <laughs> it does. I think that's probably smart of him because that. Like it, you, there's no way that Liverpool fans are going to be okay with finishing fifth. But I think he, he's smart to sort of reduce expectations, especially just because all of the questions seem to be about the title race and is the title race on and is the title race over? And it feels like it's been over. But like, so I think it's smart of him to not try to keep that conversation alive, but redirect it to maybe a more attainable goal. That feels a bit more logical to me. I yeah, don't know. I, can I disagree with that a little bit? I, I sorry, Taylor. I, I um, if I was a Liverpool fan, I just maybe this is just the red-blooded kind of uh, side of me coming through. But if if I was a Liverpool fan, I'm not sure I would want to hear that after after decades of Manchester United dominating and Man City dominating. Even if he can caveat with you know this season is going to be difficult, I'd want to hear something that that inspires confidence in me that he is. He wants to dominate, and he wants Liverpool to to be back yeah. next season, or you know maybe say something along the lines of, um, you know, yeah, this season's going to be tough, but you know we're we're we're, we're committed to you know matching City or bettering City, or but you yeah. know I, I don't know yeah. what I'm, I just I just think it seems a little bit defeatist, and 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 if you'd said to Liverpool last season that the top four would be the aim at this point of, this, of the campaign, I'm not sure they would have been too happy yeah. with that. That's a good point, Graham. And and the the thing that it connects to in my mind is when uh, David Moyes gets blown out by Man City, and then like his first press conference, the first comedy makes is like we aspire to play the football they play. Like that's not what you want to say in that moment. <laughs> yeah. That does not inspire confidence. And I take your point that you're right. Like he there's there's a maybe it's a it's a tougher line to walk. But there's something between saying yeah the title race is probably over versus like we hope we can finish top four but if not Europa League is there like you're right he probably could have pressed for we've had some setbacks we've had this we've had that we still you know expect to fight till the the bitter end and at least maybe yeah there's a bit more fight to it I think at the time though he was reeling from the results and maybe trying not to throttle Allison in public view (laughs) and then also get questions that he didn't quite like at the same time 
Now, with Manchester City in this game, you could argue they were gifted a couple, maybe three goals from sort of forced errors, but you've got to give them credit for the, the, the pressing, the intensity that sort of led to those goals. And, um, you know, there, it was a very impressive performance all around. I thought John Stones had another excellent, excellent game here. Um, arguably, if you look, watch again with the, uh, the penalty that Mo Salah won, which maybe we can talk about, but it looked like he could have even come and recovered that ball and maybe wasn't necessary yeah. for uh, Ruben Diaz to... Um, to, to lightly feather touch Mo Salah's shoulder causing the uh, causing the Egyptian to fall um, but uh, the, yeah good performances all around the field how about we do talk about um, uh, uh, Phil Foden though um, vindicated uh, uh, Taylor for his decision to stay at Manchester City when uh, others have been loaned elsewhere mm-hmm. yeah I mean sold I th- elsewhere um, I think I think he was always in Guardiola's plans to some extent. I think it's the like it's a similar situation, but very different to Tiago. It's like you have different pieces to fit in when things are going a certain way, and if you are dominating every single game, Tiago probably looks better. I think Phil Foden is maybe a player who would get more opportunities if they didn't have the talent they do, but then does get the opportunities because some of that talent is injured, and I think has also just sort of bought in to the Guardiola system. And there's, again, there's comparisons to be made with some of the Liverpool players like uh, Hamas Milder and uh, Jordan Henderson, like buying into what Jurgen Klopp wants and you see Mm. the results there. Here, it seems like Phil Foden fully bought into everything Guardiola was preaching and thus can play six different roles in one game and play them all pretty effectively. Graham, Foden and Messi next season. Discuss. (laughs) Well, that would be fun, certainly. Uh, You know, I... Stockport Iniesta, man. Yeah, yeah. Iniesta. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, hugely. <laughs> I like that everybody hates the... that. That makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just can't get over the haircut, frankly. Um, <laughs> yeah, Iniesta but... had never had anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> he never had the the Rusman shaved brow, should we say? No. Um, oh, we're not coining called... that. That is not. Oh, that's a what thing we're calling that... it now. That's what yeah, it's the called now. Brow. <laughs> the Rusman brow. brow. <laughs> Oh, it's got a portmanteau now, the Rothbrow. What? Why don't we, uh, look, uh, Graham, uh, okay, Gundogan, let's talk about him. It's nice yeah. to see a, a German miss a penalty, I must admit that. <laughs> but he had a very, very good game, and I believe this is a stat from Statman Dave, who says that Gundogan has now scored as many goals in 2021 as Liverpool have. Yeesh. Woof. Yeah, and uh, he, the, 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 the way he, that he has changed his game this season has is, is, is been pretty remarkable. And actually... I, the way City's season has turned around and this performance here, I think, exposes Jurgen Klopp a little bit. I'll explain what I mean. So, you know, a lot a lot has been made of how City, eh, sorry, sorry, Liverpool are playing without, uh, you know, a recognised centre-back at the moment. And, you know, Curtis Jones is playing in midfield. Well, City have played the whole season pretty much without a centre-forward. Um, and yet Pep Guardiola has found a way to to repurpose players. So Ilkay Gundogan has 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 been moved into a more attacking role. He is is more of a I don't want to call him a number ten because he's he's not a number ten in the traditional sense. But he he certainly seems to be more more than a the the number eight that he was that he was previously. Um, and Foden, you know, sp- speaking of Foden, he he played. I mean, I don't even know what position he was playing in this game. To be honest, he was playing a, a number nine. He was playing out in, on the wide. He was picking the ball up from deep. But it's just another anyway. sign of, of of how Guardiola has has repurposed his squad to make up for a, a very clear deficiency. And uh, look, I, I was pretty critical of Pep Guardiola last season. I doubted whether he could transition this Man City team. Um, I think there is always that urge with Guardiola because he is—he's a smart guy, right? And he, I think, likes to—I think he revels in his 
status as a smart guy. I don't think he plays that down much. And so when things are going bad for him, we as we as fans, if you're not a Man City fan or a Barcelona fan or a Bayern Munich fan, you, you quite like to cut him down. And I did a little bit of that last season. However, it's only fair that, you know, I think he's doing some pretty smart stuff with this City team right now. And what he's doing with Gundogan, I think Gundogan is, is maybe the, the best embodiment of that. How he, you know, I mean, how, how old is Ilkay Gundogan now? He must be in his 30s now? Is he up there? Yeah, he's 30, 30 yeah. years old. So to get this level of energy and just um, drive, and I guess his positional intelligence helps, and he's a, he's a very intelligent player, but to get this out of him at this stage of his career, I think Guardiola deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, you'll get, no, you'll get no arguments from me just to say that, like, yeah, this is a City team that didn't have Kevin De Bruyne, didn't have Sergio Aguero. Obviously, David Silva gone in the summer, so you're missing those creative string pullers and yeah you put Gundogan in there and suddenly he is one of those and I think yeah you, like just the way Guardiola has gotten strong performances out of this team and handled setbacks along the way and then just the way he's utilized some of the players within those setbacks that it's not sending people in to do a like-for-like -like job in this case Phil Foden when he is playing that number nine or occasionally that false nine even though I think that's quickly becoming a phrase that makes everybody rolls that roll their eyes but in this I like the idea that he's a false nine dropping in and trying to invite those center, center like defensive midfield tendencies from Henderson and Fabinho like oh yeah I'll follow him into the midfield and thus create space like I think there are times when Pep tries to do too much and tries to man mark the entire game and they lose 4-0 at halftime and then there are games when he does gamble but like like based on it's like he's like counted the cards this time and knows that he is statistically likely to pull it off and that's where the gamble makes sense sometimes he's just th going all in on like 7-2 offsuit and hoping it works out I think I mixed a couple different gambling, uh, yeah. uh, like uh, gambling options there, but so there was, yeah, it's a different uh, card metaphors I heard going in yeah. there. Wonderful stuff. <laughs> um, my my favorite moment of this match, gents, wasn't any of the goals or any of the mishaps. It was Ruben Diaz. Did you see when they were lining up for a free yeah. kick and uh, there's Zinchenko yeah. doing the whole lying on the ground thing, which was my wife was watching this game with me and it was the first time she'd seen that. She found it utterly hilarious and I uh, was sort of explaining why it was happening, but. Um, Ruben Diaz picked up Zinchenko to move him slightly, like a yard to his left. He picked him up by his neck like he was a puppy. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Uh, is there... I, I, want to sing, I want to sing the praises of Raheem Sterling because I thought he was excellent in this game and was also mm. a, a pretty big difference maker if you tried to handle Phil Foden, you left Raheem Sterling in isolated situations. But Zinchenko is one I have in my notes. Like, is there a Man City player that we have talked about less just overall? I feel like Zinchenko doesn't get talked about as being a Man City player when we end up talking about a great performance from John Stones or a good performance from Kyle Walker. I well, don't know if I've ever said a great performance from Alexander Zinchenko. Not to say he doesn't play well, just to say I feel like he gets zero credit for becoming City's left back. You can't discount how important he was when City were really good, so that 2018 kind of time. Yeah. He was, you know, yeah. he filling in at a left-back role, not a natural left-back, and um, you know, played a really, really important role in that team. I think he's a really good player as well, yeah. and sort of quite underrated is, is Alexander Zinchenko. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's just like, I feel like he's been in there doing things, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, we'll see when they get a left-back what happens. And, yeah. and then he keeps being the left-back, even when they sign other people to be that and his, his story is good as well because he, he was he was he was signed um to be one of these players that man city loan out or, or sell on so he was signed yeah. to be a jack harrison or uh or uh well i, I guess zach stefan is, is another one who's kind of forced his way in to <laughs> no but he's here the funny thing about zach stefan is i um when he first signed for manchester city i wrote a piece for the guardian and they headlined it as 
Zach, Zach Steffen will never play for Manchester City, so why has he signed for them? Which was a, quite a crude interpretation of the article that I'd actually written, but any time he now plays for Manchester City, I get Man City fans tweeting me with the, the headline to that article gloating. But uh, yeah, Zinchenko, is, I, I love the story of him fighting, basically not accepting that he would be loaned out or, or sold on and, and just fighting his way in, in, into contention for that team. Yeah, one of the lads, apparently one of the lads, bit of a cliche, but one of those guys in the in the dressing room who's quite important as well is my understanding. Uh, we've gone quite long on this game, gents. Any more for any more before we move on? Let Ederson take the penalties. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, Pep has hinted at that, hasn't he? And I think he sort of said it half jokingly, but half serious uh, previously. But now is surely the time to let Ederson take the penalties. Yeah. I yeah, mean, he's not a great take. <laughs> um, what was Gundogan trying to do with that penalty? Because I've watched it, and I think we're talking about this as well, Taylor. I watched it a, quite a lot, and it, the only conclusion is that he saw Allison moving and sort of changed his mind, but I couldn't really see the mind being changed. It looked like just maybe just a bad stance he had. What was yeah. going on there? I, I think he was trying. I think his goal was to shape entire, like he, entirely like he was going one way and then go the other. So I think he was shaping to shoot to his right, the keeper's left, and then at the last second, pull it back the other way, which he did just way too much. But when you do that, I think normally with the disguise shot, it ends up being a sort of in-step pass, and you're sort of passing mm -hmm. it into the side netting and hoping that the deception has done most of the work. Here, he went for the deception and then full power. And I think in trying to change up the body position, I think his plant foot is a couple inches too far ahead of the ball. And so then I think he's trying to make up for it by swinging like behind the ball sort of. And that means if he doesn't get his hips right, he's always angled up and that's why it goes over. So I think I'm with you that it seemed like he changed at the last second, but I got no indication right. at any point that he had been like, oh, never mind, I'm going to do this. So to me, it's just sort of he tried to pull something off and didn't quite have the mechanics. I appreciate that he said it was in honor of the Super Bowl and he was going for a field goal. That's yeah, he, he tweeted after the game that yeah, a field goal is worth three points, which is exactly the kind of tweet you can send when you win 4-1 and you score yes, two goals is. otherwise. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, it doesn't work so well if it's the other way around or if they've <laughs> drawn one to one and he was like, the Super Bowl though? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Well, uh, Manchester City have won the Premier League. We can all stop watching the Premier League for another season. We'll tune back in in August, I guess. Yeah, um, sounds good. We will uh, come back very shortly after these messages with some Manchester United Everton talk. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All righty, Manchester United versus Everton. Tied at threes. I try and use some more American terminology. Would tied at threes be something you'd say, Tay-Tay? Uh, three, three to three, I guess. I, I don't know Yeah, what you'd get. Tied at three to three or something like that, yeah. 
All right. Well, that was the score anyway in this one. Um, what do we make of this one? Uh, Taylor, I think you had less of a fun time watching this than I did. Uh, certainly those last, uh, the 94th minute of this game. Uh, watching that goal, by the way, Dominic Calvert-Lewin getting the uh, the equaliser in the 94th minute when um, the goalkeeper, Robin Olsen, came up the field as well. And that's one of the great pleasures in soccer as a neutral when you see a goalkeeper coming up the field in a regular season game to try and get an equaliser. And they forced one as well. That was wonderful stuff. And uh, I watched this again uh, on a clip on, on online. And as soon as the goal was scored by Calvert-Lewin, the French commentator said, La Felgi time! La Felgi time! <laughs> Which was wonderful. <laughs> this whole episode has just been one great big betrayal between uh, shaved eyebrow Ruffin over there making fun of Zach Steffen and Ryan Bailey enjoying my pain I, I don't know what to make of this anymore this this feels like an attack early on a monday oh my morning god i've just realized i'm a massive bully oh i'm so <laughs> sorry boys i'm so sorry i love you both uh yeah this game was uh something that's certainly uh a thing that can be said <laughs> you want to say any more <laughs> uh i mean yeah i think i think it was uh a lot of the issues that have been sort of on display once again being on display i thought it was a, a very good first half i was excited at the end of the first half it felt like they would come out and kind of see that game out and if anything like similar to when Jurgen klopp goes sprinting down the tunnel before full like halftime even goes in that moment i was like oh okay like he's got a plan liverpool are going to find a way to pull this out i sort of thought the same that it felt like Ole Gunnar solskjaer had this under control had it figured out i was surprised by how calm he looked versus how sort of shocked Carlo Ancelotti looked and at the end of the game those expressions were very much reversed so no, definitely not undeserved from Everton because I think they did a lot of smart stuff to cause yeah. Manchester United a lot of problems uh, I think Man United probably had the better of the chances and the more consistent of the chances but at the end of the day a 3-3 draw I don't really love it when then one team deserved it more than the other if both teams uh, scored the same number of goals <laughs> That's what happened. Uh, Graham, on one side of Manchester, we've got Stones and Diaz as a sort of formidable centre-back pairing. On this side of Manchester, in this game, we've got Maguire and Lindelof. Uh, mm. Does that a title challenge make? No, it doesn't. Um, I I think there is some nuance required when analysing Maguire and Lindelof. I don't think either are bad players. I think they are a bad partnership. And I, I, I said this in the group chat during the game. The the the, the way Man City, sorry Man United conceded. All, I think all three goals were a good illustration of why um, Eric Bay is so important to this to this Manchester United team. Eric Bay's qualities. So Maguire and Lindelof are both decent players, but their weaknesses are very similar. So every time. Everton were playing the ball into the channels. They were in trouble. They, they, they always have trouble against fast forwards or, or, or even forwards who, who are faster than them or as, as fast as them, you know, they, and, and they aren't uh, particularly pacey. So that's pretty much everyone. Um, and there was, a, there was a key moment at, right at the end of the first half that I actually felt was a, an understated turning point where Calvert-Lewin um, is completely th clean through on goal and he shoots wide. Um, which obviously was a big miss at the time. But I think going into the halftime interval, that showed Everton what they needed to do more of. And I don't think it's a coincidence that w within seven minutes of the second half, they'd scored two goals from from basically doing that. And so Eric Bailly has the, has the pace to mask the deficiencies of Maguire and, or, or Lindelof. Um, but Maguire and Lindelof... They, uh, Lindelof's quite good on the ball, but then I think, well, Harry Maguire is quite good on the ball and he mm. was supposed to be 
you remember when Harry Maguire was being linked with Manchester City, which suggests that Guardiola saw, it's, it's not just me or Solskjaer, you know, that there, Guardiola, who always wants his defenders to play out from the back, also saw Harry Maguire as, as a, a possible fit for Man City. So he could perform that role on his own. You know, I don't think Solskjaer needs to play a ball player alongside Harry Maguire. He can be that player. Um, but he needs someone who can who can basically mop up behind him with a little bit of pace and also intensity. Intensity is lacking from that Manchester United defence. It's not just mm. Harry Maguire and Lindelof, it's Wan-Bissaka at times as well, who switches off, particularly with, with offside decisions. De Gea, the, the equaliser here, was really slow in coming off his line. And, and I look at how Manchester United injected some intensity into their midfield with Bruno Fernandes. I now think they've injected some intensity into their forward line with Edison Cavani, and I think yeah. they need someone to bring that intensity to the to the defense because it's it's just it's just missing at the moment. I I don't disagree with anything Graham said. I would I would then like go to this is where uh, like my concern, my consternation with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer persists because. On the one hand, it is this argument of like, oh, you're playing these two center backs and they don't seem like they fit really well. They don't seem like they complement each other that well. I would argue a big part of that seems to be the pace. And you could see Harry Maguire anytime there's a ball played in and he is now in a foot race. You could almost see the panic on his face and you can blame the center backs for that. But I think there's also an argument to be made that further up the field, if you're letting James Rodriguez have five and ten seconds on the ball routinely, he is very good and he is going to pick out passes and he is going to find space. And I think if you want to limit some of the ineffectiveness of your defenders or some of their vulnerabilities, it helps to put more pressure on the ball players when they have it. And I think Man United started, especially in the second half, to just let these big gaps go- open up. And this is the most frustrating thing for me, speaking more as a fan than someone trying to provide objective analysis, is just I still don't know what their preferred style is aside from counterattack and score some goals. And so when these holes open up, they don't seem like they get solved. It seems like there are player for player substitutions that are meant to solve them, but then you're just swapping out players and not kind of fixing the system. And that persists such that you end up conceding a last second, last kick equalizer. Right. I think that we, we, we were discussing in our group chat, Taylor, about what happened after halftime when Everton pulled those two goals back. And you nailed, hit the nail on the head there. For me, it was the, the amount of space they allowed Everton's players, particularly in the middle, like Davies for both the first and second goal, just allowed to yeah, stroll through. Yeah, yeah. He had all the space in the world to do it, didn't he? It was crazy. Yeah. And giving Hammers all the space and time he wanted on the edge of the box you know, to get his shot off as well. It seemed like it, what, what Graham said there, lack of intensity and... On that, um, I think it was the Decore goal, the 2-1 goal, Cavani was the only one who was trying to chase things down. He was one. He was the only one who was trying to close things down, trying to yeah. trying to actually get on the ball. So it was it was a little bit lackluster from Man United, certainly in that period. It was, and I, I would say it is not helped by, I think in the past it was helped by David De Gea being David De Gea, and he had that reputation. He had this sort of pedigree that not the people were afraid of, but I put it in the same category as Virgil van Dijk of just if there is a world-class player who is doing world-class things, you know that's a thing. You know I've got to try extra hard. This shot has to be extra perfect. Karl Enka has long argued on this show that teams realized De Gea is not good at getting his feet set quickly, and so if you can shoot when he doesn't expect it to happen, or if you can do something he doesn't expect you to do, he cannot react to it. And I think Mm -hmm. teams really are, again, with no Virgil van Dijk, that Liverpool looks vulnerable. With a shadow of David De Gea, I think Manchester United look that much more vulnerable. And you could look at the first goal where I think he 100% is shaping for Dominic Calvert-Lewin to shoot near post. His entire body position is cover the near post. He gets tight. He gets into a position to make a save. But that entire body position then prohibits him from 
diving out and catching a ball as it's chipped back across. Mm-hmm. I think for the equalizer, he just stays rooted to his line because I think he doesn't trust himself to come out and win that ball. And those little issues get bigger and bigger as they don't get dealt with. And as maybe some of the quickness, some of the reflexes fade a little bit as you get a little bit older, I think you have to adapt your game. You have to try new things. We talked about it with Pep Guardiola. Yeah. I don't see De Gea doing that. And I see De Gea becoming more of an issue than I think I've ever seen him be. Well, it was quite some goalkeeper energy going on in this game, wasn't it? I did enjoy yeah. Man United uh, bringing on a defender and conceding the equaliser yeah. a, a minute later, by the way. And that defender <laughs> conceded the foul that led and, to the equaliser. Twan's yeah. yes, conceding the foul that, that led to the equaliser, as you yeah. say, Taylor. Uh, Graham... It, was, it did seem like a competition of goalkeepers trying to out-terrible each other in this game, wasn't it? It was uh, uh, Robert Olsen not, not covering himself in glory, particularly for that McTominay um, header for 3-2, uh, which McTominay getting that header off very impressively with four Everton shirts within about six inches of him. I'm not quite sure how he got that header off, but he did. But uh, Robert Olsen, I think, is just about landing from that dive <laughs> about now. And I think Ilko Gundogan's penalty is just landing uh, from orbit right now as well, just to keep track of that. But uh, as you mentioned, just maybe are we uh, are we uncovering a new issue with goalkeepers in this pandemic with the mental fatigue that's being talked about a lot? Are we not um, as this un- unraveled a new thread here for goalkeepers? Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, the, the thing with Robin Olsen w- was a really strange. I mean, are Everton only allowed to sign goalkeepers with dinosaur arms? Um, because <laughs> between Jordan Pickford, who official uh, policy, yeah, Jordan Pickford, yeah, they've got the football manager search function, you know, homegrown status, under twenty five dinosaur arms search. Uh, oh, Rob Nelson, yeah, we'll get him specifically, perfect, perfect. Spe- uh, specifically T Rex arms. I think like yeah. a Diplodocus yeah. or something because they have quite big arms. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we should further clarify that for the for, to, to not look stupid or sound stupid, because uh, <laughs> we sounded pretty good until then. Yeah, yeah, um, yes. It was it was funny goalkeeping from from both goalkeepers at Old Trafford. And you're right, as I mentioned, that I don't know, I don't really know what's going on with with Premier League goalkeepers. I think the only goalkeeper at the moment who seems to be playing well is uh, Martinez for for Aston Villa. Yeah. Um, mm. Even Bern Leno, I mean, he got sent off what last week as well um he had been having a, a decent season but he he then made a, a, a blunder in that game um so um yeah I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure you're right maybe men- a, mental, mental fatigue might be a, an issue go ahead Taylor I have like a half-baked idea which is I, I would I would like to know how clubs are handling field maintenance in the COVID era if you're not allowed to have as many people in the stadium or as many people around each other at once because I do like in this game there were lots of players losing footing I would argue part of the reason why Olsen struggles to deal with that McTominay header that power header that perfect directional header such as it was uh, is because he slips and loses his footing and it seemed like lots of different players Gundogan I think would probably argue oh no I lost my footing maybe that's just an excuse but so this weekend I kept seeing players falling over not just in this game it seemed like a sort of ubiquitous thing that there were players losing footing players not being quite comfortable in their challenges Dimitri Payet might use that as an example for some of his challenges but I do wonder if field maintenance has also taken a hit during the pandemic and maybe that's part of why we don't see the sure footing we don't see as many competent quick reflex saves if the field isn't quite as nice again a very half-baked idea but just one that I kept noticing the slipping and now I wonder if that those things are linked uh Jürgen Klopp if you are listening there's another excuse for you, <laughs> you to uh, mm-hmm. put down in the book uh, for, to, for use in the next one Um, uh, just before we move on from this game uh, Taylor Bruno Fernandes who's a hero once again he sort of oscillates between hero and villain Mm -hmm. of course because of hashtag narrative Um, 
is he is he the new Cantona? He scored a very Cantona-esque goal here. If Cantona was the king, is Bruno the prince that was promised? Uh, he's a happier prince. I feel like he does have that, like, the, the king has the burden, heavy lies the crown. A fresh prince? And the prince can be cheery and smiley. Uh, I, I feel like I go with uh, uh, what's it, uh, Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed there as being heavy lies the crown. That's the one I always go with in that moment. That's what you're looking for, right, Ryan? I, I'm always looking for Departed references. The best Scorsese <laughs> uh, movie. That's why I got the Oscar. Yeah, not the one that he ripped off the most. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, in in this case, like... I, I think Bruno Fernandez seems to just be such a positive locker room presence, even for people who've left the club. Like when Jesse Lingard scores two goals, he's the first one to comment. He seems like such a a, a promising, positive figure. It's why they're already they've already reopened contract renewal talks. I think they started when he was ten months into his current deal, which doesn't expire for another like four years, I think. So they seem to be thinking Manchester United seem to be thinking that he is the new Cantona, who can also be the new sort of happy emotional leader for this team i don't really disagree with that because i have a massive soft spot for him though that doesn't seem to be a thing that a lot of non-manchester united fans have i like him indeed i like him (laughs) (laughs) me too me too uh i was thinking about this game uh because obviously it was a nine nil for manchester united in the week uh just just the uh 15 goals at old trafford in the past week i mean that's okay i guess that's not bad for entertainment um the last time man united won nine nil was it Ipswich? I think in the mid in the mid nineties. It was. Um, I remember specifically that scoreline coming in because I was watching my team Wimbledon at Selhurst Park, and we sort of heard on the radio that it was nine nil at Manchester United, and we were playing Manchester United the following week, uh, and we only lost one nil in that game to uh, to, uh, to to Manchester United. Yeah, it was not too bad. At all. Not too bad at all. Um, weird, weirdly. Um, some parallels I drew here because it was a Steve Bruce late goal that got that for for uh, for Man United. But we we Wimbledon were down to uh, ten men because uh, Alan Kimball got a red card. Alan Kimball was our fullback who delivered a, uh, famously at Old Trafford the following season, famously for us anyway, delivered a free kick to Robbie Earl who headed in to equalise and we uh, knocked the FA Cup holders out of the FA Cup that season. Just made me think of, you know, free kicks coming in to get last minute equalisers at Old Trafford. Some lovely symmetry there. I'm sorry for boring you for the last couple of minutes with that uh, little uh, allusion to the 90s, but I do love the 90s. Any more on this game, gents, before we move on? I've got an upside for Taylor on on that on this collapse as a Manchester United fan. I've got an yeah. upside for you. I think it's really clear what Manchester United need right now. I think it, it reminds me of Jurgen, uh, Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool before they got Allison and Van Dijk, where it was just mm-hmm. so clear what they needed. You know, some Man United teams under Moyes and Van Hal and Mourinho, you've looked at the team and there's just so much to do. You think, right, where do we even begin? I don't think that this team's there now. I think the deficiencies are so clear that. Even the Glazers, even the Glazers and Ed Woodward, surely this summer are going to go out and get a centre-back and a defensive midfielder and possibly a right-winger. I genuinely thought you were leading up to say that they're going to sign Tom Brady, and I was about to be furious. (laughs) 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 I I really thought that's where we were going. Uh, What about right-winger? Do you think that that's that's been a little more sorted than it's been in the past? They they looked more balanced with with greed. I think that that's another big thing of this game was they looked, this is the best balanced minded attack I've seen maybe all season with Greenwood out in the right. I think he's the best option. I think you put Rashford on the left. Don't move him from the left. He's brilliant on the left. Yep. Um, But I still think they do need a natural right-winger. But I think minded are, are their problems are so clear now that there's there will surely be a transfer market focus um, similar to what Liverpool had when they were at a similar point under Klopp. 
if if you were Graham, if they called you and asked you for your advice, when you talk about those two positions, are there specific characteristics for those spots that you think they should look at more than others, aside from dinosaur arms? Yeah, well, the first one is a funny name, so Jez Horncamp is definitely top of the the list. Nothing uh, funny about that. <laughs> no, but I think I think in, intensity. I mean, if if, if Mister Horncamp has has intensity uh, in that defensive position, he can play, he can play right mm. back, I think, and forward. Yeah, he's perfect. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> him then. Very good. Um, Taylor, interesting that you went from Tom Brady to immediately talking about the right wing. I'm not sure how you made those um, <laughs> connections in your mind. but um, should, should... I don't know either. I don't know either. <laughs> that was Manchester United 3-3 against Everton. We go on. We're going to talk more uh, about the Sockers shortly after these messages. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, ladies and gents, la classique. I didn't pronounce that very well, but the classic en Francais, Marseille against PSG. PSG coming out two nil winners in this one. Uh, third place at PSG. Now they're not winning league. Uh, uh, if you haven't been paying attention to that uh, title race at the moment, it's uh, is it Lille on top? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yep. uh, and Leon are up there as well. Uh, Marseille have lost four of their last five, meanwhile. Uh, this one, traditionally a very heated game, and there was a traditional red card in this one. More on that later, but Taylor, let's talk about Marseille and their current situation. Uh, they had their academy manager, Nassar Loguet, looking after this game because there's been a little bit of a situ with Andre Villas-Boas, who was suspended <laughs> by bit. the club a matter of days ago for disagreeing with their sporting policy handing in his rec- resignation because they yeah. signed uh, Olivier Nincham from Celtic tell us more uh, I will because yes it, also part of that would be hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to their training complex because it's been a contentious time in Marseille mm. it goes back to the 
the new quote unquote ownership that came in, I think 2015 or 2016, Frank McCourt, uh, he appoints GM Jacques-Henri Erard, I think is how he, we'll go with that. We'll go Jacques-Henri. I, I know that is that, uh, yeah, who yeah. is not a football person uh, and I think claims as such and then makes comments like when he came in, 99% of the staff at Marseille were, or, uh, were from Marseille and he didn't like that. He wanted it more diversified because he didn't want everybody so sad when they lost a the game. It, it had an effect Yeesh. on morale. Shocking that having everybody working towards one common thing would lead to some people sometimes being sad. Anyway, uh, where we go from there is that there's questions about player acquisitions. There's a falling out uh, with Vyash Boas such that then he decides he's going to let his contract run down. And this is a team, we should note, that though they're in ninth right now, they qualified for the Champions League last year, albeit because the season ends prematurely. But as recently as December, I think they were had two games in hand. If they win both those games, they would have been top of the table. Now they're in ninth. So it's a very quick sort of falling out, very quick turnaround. I think a lot of it has to do with Vyash Boas not being happy, saying he doesn't really want to be there anymore, saying he won't renew. Then we have, as you mentioned, the, the Cham situation where they bring in Celtic midfielder Olivier Cham against his advice. Um, Vyash Boas would not even say the player's name, just said that I had said no, and now he, here he is. So I think there's an element of you all are planning for the team without me. You're bringing in people for the next manager. Why am I still here? But I also think there's an element of maybe this is the conspiracy brain in me, but this felt like the board sort of forcing his hand of knowing he's angry, knowing he doesn't want this player, knowing that he has publicly said, like, they might sack me at any moment. I don't know what's going to happen. There's an element of we're going to bring in a player we know you you don't want so that then you'll say things that we can then use to justify suspending slash maybe eventually sacking you. I kind of forget where we are on that one. <laughs> I like to think what that a after... Time. I like to think that after, so that the rioters um, at the training ground stole, or they, they emptied uh, Vias Boas' yeah. suitcase. I like to think that after those contents were stolen, he was like, well, that's it. All my secret. I can't, I can't continue now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They've got the dossier. They can manage the team now. Was it just um, like shredded paper from the paper shredder that was in the briefcase, though? What was in there? A sandwich. Uh, just a framed photo of Jose Mourinho. That's it. Uh <laughs> We don't, he's not, I think he's paperless because we know he does PowerPoint presentations, right, for all his stuff, Andrew Vias Boas. So I, I would love to know what he carries in paper form in his briefcase, but I, if I think anything. That fan invade, like the, the fan unrest and then the like attacking the training ground, where the players were, they were staying there like a, the night or a night or so before the game. Uh, players come down, there's some injuries. Vias Boas feels like he, he is being personally threatened. And that, that is not what you want to have your fans sort of intimidating players like a couple days before a game. It was part of a larger thing in France. It happened in San Etienne as well. Um, but I think like I don't even really want to speak to that because it's just it's not a great situation other than to say that what I thought was interesting is if you want to understand like the Marseille DNA understanding that the fans are mostly annoyed because Jacques-Henri, as I understand it, is from Paris and went to Harvard. And I don't think it's even that like, oh, he has PSG loyalties. I think this goes deeper into that idea of Paris isn't really a football city. So bringing in somebody from Paris to run this club that has no connection to Marseille, like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And a lot uh -huh. of the attacks seem very focused on Jacques-Henri and not so much on Frank McCourt, the owner, or Vies Bosch even. Like there's certainly frustration with him, but I think it's much larger operational decisions and the way the club is being run and the idea that this hyper local club seems to have global aspirations and isn't so concerned with the immediacy of the fandom and of the support in the city.
So we can draw parallels with Mike Ashley at Newcastle with the Newcastle yes. fans distrusting a, a southerner Ugh, yeah, coming in exactly. and, and doing stuff to their team. Interesting stuff. Well, we talked a lot about um, AVB here, but maybe the focus before we went into this game was the other manager, Maurizio Pochettino yeah. uh, at Paris Saint-Germain. I was interested to watch this game, Graham, to see what kind of changes he had made uh, mm-hmm. to the playing style, what kind of changes maybe to the personnel as well. From what I could see, not a great deal, maybe a little higher press, maybe in the midfield sitting a little bit deeper. I know that Potts likes to take a little bit of time to get his team playing how they want. Did you notice anything different here from Tuchel's reign? Um, not not tactically. I think obviously they're they're still playing that that four three three shape. It, it, as you say, it's it's quite similar in style. He has he has made a couple of big personnel choices. So so not not to big myself up or anything but um I think I said to you that I, when he was appointed that I, I would wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Icardi back in the in the starting lineup and and, and mm. that has been the case Moise Keane has has kind of dropped out of the the starting lineup which is very harsh on on uh, young Moise Keane because he's he's he'd been having a very good season up up, up until uh, Pochettino came in but Pochettino likes to play with a, a more kind of orthodox center forward as he did with with Harry Kane at, at Spurs obviously and, and and Icardi's been playing more centrally and in the first team recently another one is Marquinhos which I think was a, a wise decision Tuchel had been using him in in central midfield a lot and there's a clear need for him to be in central defence right now after Thiago yeah. Silva left and they, they didn't replace him. So he's he's back in central defence. He's played pretty much every game there under, under Pochettino. And, and yeah, I think those two personal changes are, are, are the biggest things he has done so far. A lot of logic to them. But maybe once he gets a solid basis was when we'll start to see him trying a few different things. Yeah, and we'll have his big test, of course, coming up uh, a week on Tuesday. Barcelona PSG taking on a big one for Poch, not just because it's a, a big test on a big platform, but him being an Espanol man. I'm sure there's a lot at stake uh, for him in that one. And yeah, I thought Marquinhos and Kimbempe were very good uh, in the back in this one. Uh, Icardi worth pointing out, as you say, for not getting a header, but a necker. I think mm-hmm. it was kind of for that for that very impossibly angled goal for the second goal. But why don't we talk a little bit about the first goal, Kylian Mbappe. Uh, if there's one thing that we got from Poch here, it was a counter-attacking goal um, for, for, for me, the me. first goal. Coming from a, coming from a corner, uh, Mbappe's 16th goal of the season, in which he nearly broke the space-time continuum. He was <laughs> running so fast uh, to sort of break up the field. Uh, at his peak on that run from the corner, uh, he was in the six-yard box when the corner came in, by the way, the Marseille corner, and he breaks uh, out of the box. Uh, he hits a 23-mile-per-hour slash 37-kilometer-per-hour peak. That is roughly the same speed as Usain Bolt's average speed over 100 meters. Obviously, it's a bit different because Usain Bolt's going from a stop-start, and, uh, and it's, it, but it's very, very, very it's impressive. impressive. <laughs> it, it just looks it just looks like um because his strides are so big it looks like he's running the same speed but he's just like sped up (laughs) from everybody else if that makes sense my wife was watching this game with me and she pointed out he he has a weird not even weird it's a different stride when it comes to his arms like he doesn't fully extend them and they never go fully vertical the way you see with a lot of sprinters it's just a different motion that makes it look like I think because his arms stay more like horizontal, it looks like he's covering even more ground. He looks more like a cheetah. Like I guess is what I'm trying to get at. And man, does he ha- like the pace is incredible. We knew that, but it's the for me, it's the ability to like ride a challenge and then still finish perfectly. Yeah. Like he he takes a look, sees where the goalkeeper is, takes another touch, and then passes it past Mandanda. I think he's a, obviously like in those moments. There's always a little bit of fortune. Like he's not aiming like especially between the leg and the forearm or anything like that. But I think it's that striker's ability to know where you are in relation to the goal, where you're going to be, but that he can go from 
100 to basically zero so quickly to then have a a pin, like an inch perfect shot is just it defies physics and i watched that goal so many times because i yeah. thought it was so pleasing listen if you haven't seen this goal you, you got to look look at this goal because it, it is quite incredible from from mbappe and as you mentioned he sort of jumps a slide tackle i think it was sakai the, the right back who put, mm-hmm. puts in a slide tackle but it, it's never going to reach mbappe and beating mandanda at his near post as well uh, very impressive um graham i think i cut you off there no, I was just saying these these are my absolute favorite types of goal. Uh, it, mm. Like the, the, one of my favorite goals of all time is is Cristiano Ronaldo in the Champions League against Arsenal counter attack. I love it when it comes from an opposition corner and you just know within three seconds mm-hmm. they're going to be in the opposition box, and that's what you knew when when you see Mbappe racing up the near side. <laughs> I mean, I know there's a tackle in there, but you might as well stop running because he's he's yep. going to score. Yeah. Well, this was um, this was a pretty entertaining game, I'd say. It's not often I watch a league. I'm glad I did for this one. Certainly, we've got something that's very rare in soccer. We got some gay on gay action, of course. Um, I'm talking about Pap Gay and uh, and Adrisa Gay coming up against each other. Um, Pap Gay. There was a specific incident where I think you did Pap- this to yourself. <laughs> No regrets, no regrets. Uh, Pap Gay, he, he got a shot off. And I think uh, when Idrissa Gay sort of let the ball run in error, I think he was trying to let the ball run back to uh, uh, to Marquinhos, I think it was. Um, so that, that was an interesting moment just because I wanted to say gay on gay action. That's yeah. all I mentioned that for. Uh, and uh, Dimitri Payet, of course, from Marseille, getting a late red card in this one for a very high dangerous tackle. And if you're going to put a high tackle on anyone, don't do it on Verratti. No. Risky That's business, it. right? It seems unnecessary. It also, I'm glad to see that Dimitri Payet has recovered from his phantom back pains he had when he was in London to be able to to boot people in this one. Again, watching with my wife, she was like, did he mean to do that? I was like, yes, he absolutely did. <laughs> it was the the red miss moment. It was a Paul Scholes moment. I think yeah. afterwards you could see him realize like, oh, I might get a red card for this one and I probably deserve it. I feel kind of bad. And he kind of sat there with that, like I've been caught grin that sometimes happens. Like if I do something very stupid, Sometimes my reaction is just to like laugh and be like, haha, I'm dumb. And I feel like that's kind of what he was going for there. Didn't work, got the red, and off he went. I have to say, gents, with the with the white shirts, with um with, with all the top knots that Marseille had, including Dimitri Payet and sort of the ghost of Bielsa in that stadium, I was confused as to which team I was watching for a second. It did feel like it was a, a little leadsy, a little leadsy out there in Marseille. Uh, or oh, I dare say Marseille is a slightly more pleasant uh, uh, place to visit than Oh, I'm being very harsh on Leeds. Am I being too harsh on Leeds, Graham? I mean, we're never gonna get any listeners from Florida again. We're never gonna get any <laughs> listeners from Leeds. Again, uh, but yeah, Ryan. I think Good I boy. think to to say that the south of France along the Mediterranean is slightly more hospitable than northern England is probably a fair statement. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a yeah. I don't think I was being too harsh in that assessment, no. given the Mm-mm. geographical and topographical uh, differences in those two places. Let's move on swiftly, shall we? Uh, final game we want to talk about in this weekend review: Juventus taking on Roma. Juventus leapfrogging, leapfrogging, I should say, Roma into third place in the Calcio tables. What did we take? away from this one gents one of my key takeaways from this one is that Cristiano Ronaldo still bounding around like a puppy uh, mm. is very wonderful to see uh, he got the, the first goal in this game uh, really really interesting technique or great yeah. technique I should say um, so the ball gets to him on the edge of the box traps it with his right foot and has this left foot shot which is from quite an awkward body position yeah. And I think I saw it described as sort of a 20-yard tap-in. But to find that accuracy in that moment in time with that kind of body position, Graham, very impressive. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it was particularly good technique. It didn't, it didn't look like great technique, but I think it, I think it sums up 
Ronaldo is, which is basically he as soon as he takes the, this touch, he's not really bothered about how it ends up in the back of the net. He's just he's just finely tuned to score goals and make sure yeah. his team wins. So it, it, that's the way that he needed to finish that chance, and 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 so he did it. And yeah, it looked a bit awkward and a little bit funny, but <laughs> balls in the back of the net. Who cares? Yeah. yeah, there's there's to to connect it to the like Bruno Fernandez goal for a moment. There's something about like being able to process and evaluate things in microseconds that I think Bruno Fernandez had for his goal, and I think Ronaldo has here of just like taking a touch and evaluating, and then realizing like, oh, if I do a weird push pass shot in this exact moment, I will put it into the side netting. Like to to be able to pull it off, but also to have the awareness to know. I have to do this type of strike. And I think Bruno had the same thing of, oh, I've looked off Tom Davies a little bit. If I hit it with like an in-step laces, it will bend in the right way. The Like reading and knowing exactly where you are, but then knowing how to execute to make sure the ball ends up in the back of the net. It's just a skill that so few players have or can pull off so consistently that when a player does it so consistently, like Mbappe, like Ronaldo, it stands mm-hmm. out that much more. Yeah, and it was just so good to see Ronaldo really wanting it. He really wanted this win in this game. And you could see that there was a moment where he sort of had that deflected shot that hit the crossbar. Yeah. And he was so furious. He was like, I, I demand to see the watch on the VAR the, or the, the, goal, the goal line technology on the referee. He was trying to grab the referee's wrist. He makes it, to try, he try makes and it pr- so hard, man. Sorry to interrupt, Ryan. It's just like, because in that moment, I saw that too. And... I have the kind of preconceived idea of Ronaldo. So I initially saw that and thought like, oh, he's such a, like, he's such a baby. Like he's such a whiner. And then you look at it for a moment and you think like, oh no, like any other player, they're just messing around. They'd be like, show me the watch, show me the watch. I want to see like Mourinho has done that. And it's sort of a lighthearted thing. And then like 15 minutes into the second half, Ronaldo gets a yellow for screaming at the referee for not calling it the way he wanted. And then it puts the other one in perspective and it's like, "Eh, maybe it was 50-50 good natured, but also like, let me just make sure the watch isn't broken for real. It's, It's what makes him, it's one of the many things that makes him a frustrating character, in my mind at least. Elite mentality. That's all it is, Taylor. Elite mentality. And you can even see on the second goal, he was he was really wanting yeah. to claim that as well. An own goal. He thinks about it. If it is. He, he does think about <laughs> he it. He thinks about it for a second and then realizes he's not going to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of takes the hand down. Uh, in, his, in his mind he claimed it in his mind he claimed it definitely uh taylor west of mckinney uh, i thought was pretty good in this one 94 percent success pass rate uh found himself central quite a few times found himself in the front line quite a few times as well i thought he was kind of if, if uh, ronaldo was the bounding puppy he was the the duracell bunny a lot of energy in this one too <laughs> Indeed, Ronaldo will take credit for Weston McKinney's energy. Though. Of course. That is yeah. the thing. Yeah, officially. Uh, it was interesting to me because I watched this game after the Super Bowl, which uh, was late. Uh, but I knew going in the result. And I also knew from the uh, FootMob app that I think McKinney had the lowest rating of any Juve player that started the game, at least. So I yeah. kind of expected him to have a bad performance. I didn't think it would be that good. And then about halfway through, I sort of had to like, oh, Maybe I'm like, I just decided this is a bad performance because he has a few little mistakes. But yeah, to your point, I saw a lot of good connective passing and I saw a lot of covering ground. And the biggest thing for me was being alive to defensive situations. There's a few different moments in which he spots, like, I am marking a player there less of a threat than the player who's closer to goal, who no one is paying attention to. And on two different occasions, he closes a good 15, 20 yard gap and either intercepts the ball or forces it to be a back pass. And I thought, that awareness is probably why Andrea Pirlo likes him so much, but it's also not a thing that I really ever identified as being an aspect of Weston McKinney's game, and I certainly do now. So, yeah, yeah. I would say another positive game 
again, maybe seen through red, red, white, and blue glasses, but I will take it because that's how it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the stats on who scored right now, and of the outfield players who started, he does have the lowest rating, which doesn't quite sit with what I saw either, right? but maybe we are exercising some bias there. And this wasn't exactly a classic Juventus performance, we should say. Um, kind of quite defensive, quite, you know, sitting back after getting that relatively early goal. Not quite as open as one might hope for as a, as a neutral watching this game. And also the 2-0 scoreline, Graham, I thought didn't quite do Roma justice. They just sort of, they had a, they went for a period, particularly in the, in the latter stage of this game, where they had a ton of chances to pull one back, but lacked that final touch and sort of maybe maybe deserved a little bit more. Is that fair? Yeah, per- perhaps. But to be honest, this was this performance was really, really Max Allegri for me from from Juventus. It felt like a Max Allegri mm. performance. Um, Juventus have kept six clean sheets in their last seven games to to start twenty twenty one. I know we called Chiellini and Benucci old a few weeks ago, but I thought they were they, they were pretty solid here, and it gives well, they're still you know, old. Yeah, they're they're still old. Yeah, but uh, there's life in in the old guys left. Uh, you know, the, give give Juventus the option of sitting back and hitting out on on, on the counter through uh, kind of quick transitions. So yes, I get what you're saying, but I, I never felt like Roma were they had chances and they had good territory and they did well considering that they there was no um, Lorenzo Pellegrini for them and 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 Zeko I think was still on the bench, mm-hmm. wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, because yeah, he's still in the fault. The, the kind of he's still. And the aftermath of the fallout with uh, with Fonseca, obviously. So, g- given that they were missing two of their their, their best creative players, uh, yeah, they, they they did okay. But I, I never really felt like Juventus were were troubled that much, and th- that just reminds me of watching them under Allegri, where Juventus under Allegri were never they they rarely blew teams away. I never watched them and thought, oh, that was really impressive from Juventus. But they they just won games, and I, and I think that's that's a good place for Juventus to be right now, where they're they're not quite. They've not quite completed that transition under Pirlo to the whatever the new style is, the new identity. So they're kind of going back to what they they know best, and and this is their best run of the season so far. Yeah. Hey, Graham. Sorry, sorry, Ryan, to jump in. Graham, I assumed Jekko. I, I watched it without commentary, so I assumed it was just like he was recovering from injury and had a minor knock. I didn't realize there had been a falling out or a dust up with Fonseca. What was that about it? Um, I'm not entirely sure what the the actual. Um, what the fallout was about but yeah there was mm-hmm. he was he was kind of shipped around in the last week of the the transfer window oh, wow. there was a story that he himself was making contact with he made contact with Manchester City which was a, eh, a little bit ambitious from uh, Ed, <laughs> from uh, Zeko there but you, you you have to admire the 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 It'd be a return right he was there before yeah he was, was yeah. yeah and he was and okay. he was pretty good yeah he was yeah. he won t- a title there I think um but yeah he was he was kind of sh- touted around Europe and and no one really really took him so that this is this is the aftermath of that where they kind of have to reintegrate him into the squad somehow but you know they, they, they're not quite ready to put him back in the first team but um wow. yeah talk about Juventus going back to old school plans and Eddie Dzeko trying to do that quite literally with his career evidently um <laughs> I thought they were that Roma did look better when him and, uh, and Perez came on those good additions yeah. uh, later in this game fun Roma fact for you there they're still winless against the top eight teams in Syria and they're undefeated against the bottom 10 teams interesting and um, <laughs> still still quite up there in the Serie A rankings as well any more for any more on this one and indeed anything else for today gentlemen before we wrap it up yeah, I think if uh, Roma had played Brian Reynolds from the start, we know they would have won this game 5-0. More Americans <laughs> doing things, Graham Ruffin. Uh, I'm also still, you brought him up, baffled as to why Max Allegri doesn't have a job. I did more reading on that one. I read several articles, and it seems like the answer is he's not taking a job until he knows it's the job he wants, and thus far that hasn't presented itself. But that feels 
Like a person who should have a gig by now and maybe will soon. What's the job he wants? I don't know. I, <laughs> I've seen reports that it's Man United, but that, I don't uh, know. That might just be like like the things I read. I don't think he needs huh. to go there. Uh, I feel like Dortmund would be v- very good for him, but okay. maybe that's not the profile he wants. Maybe it's Madrid after Zidane. Who knows what will happen? But, does anyone, uh, Does any? sorry to interrupt here, but does uh, any out of work manager sit there and think, I really want the Man United job? Sincerely. Yeah. No. yeah i mean i guess if you it depends on your mentality i'm gonna guess graham has has the mentality of like i can do this i'm gonna fix this whereas i think i'm like i like i'm the one who didn't want them to sign christian pulisic mostly because i didn't want my club to be in control of that player's fate and the the fate of the u.s national team uh if he doesn't play then it's my club that gets blamed for it so maybe that's where my answer is coming from whereas graham i feel like is is more optimistic and is going to figure things out and make it better so let's get graham ruffin in charge of man united <laughs> i think pochettino might be a better hire he wants it that's my hunch pochettino wants I, a united job i oh think oh man I found it really hard to watch BSG play for that reason. Because it just like it was like, oh, this is what like a competent manager comes in. I, I do honestly think that he has the connections to PSG via Tottenham, via the players. So like I feel like Lucas Mora has probably told Neymar and Marquinhos, like, no, he's a really good manager. And uh like Ugo Lloris or Sissoko has probably told M- uh, Mbappe that. Maybe Lamella spoke to Wakardi. Like I think there's there probably is some connection there that made them a bit more embracing of his philosophy and style than maybe they were under Thomas Ducal. And yeah, seeing him just kind of patrol that touchline and make a little adjustments and then PSG win pretty in pretty dominating fashion. My, my heart was a little tiny bit sad. Well, Taylor, why don't we let you release those straws that you're clutching for that, for that little link you made there and uh, we'll, we'll, say, we'll bid adieu <laughs> to the listeners for the weekend review. A wonderful show once again. Uh, Graham Ruthman, thank you very much for your time and thank you for joining us with your two intact, fully grown eyebrows. <laughs> and they'll be staying that way forever. <laughs> we'll thank see. you, Ryan. We'll see. Thanks, Ryan. Tay-Tay, pleasure as always. Love you. You're both on the list, but you're fine. (laughs) 